If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to the book of Revelation, chapter 18. Uh, Revelation 18.1, here we go. God's last message, Christ our righteousness. Let's read the verse, Revelation 18.1, and then let's pray. The Bible says, After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Dear God, dear Jesus, this is the hour of power. I know that you have been blessing all of the presenters and you have blessed my first talk yesterday and this morning uh, is, is really like the highlight of the weekend. It's the main talk on Sabbath morning. And we just pray, God, that you will take charge of our time together. Uh, I've been impressed recently that I should pray also that you would deliver me from the sins of the spotlight, of being at the center of people's eyesight. Because, Lord, I want you, Jesus, to be at the center of our focus, not Steve Wahlberg. Jesus needs to be lifted up. And I pray, Lord, that that will happen today, that Jesus will be lifted up, that your truth will be very, very powerful, and that you will help all of us to understand it and then to surrender our lives to you. God, please bless us right now in a mighty way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to start out by telling you a little story about this picture on the screen. It was about three months ago, my little eight-year-old boy, actually he's not so little anymore, he's getting bigger every day, he came running in from the bedroom into the living room where I was, and he drew that little picture after that, and he said, he said, Daddy, Daddy, I had a dream last night. It was an amazing dream. And I said, what was it? And he said, Daddy, in my dream, I dreamed that I went to heaven. And how did he say it? He said, I dreamed that I went to the new Jerusalem. That's what he said. I went to the new Jerusalem. And he said, and I, I saw the streets of gold in the new Jerusalem. And then he said, he said, and Daddy, I saw Jesus sitting on a throne. And then he said, Jesus was so bright. He was so bright that I had to squint in order to see him. And I thought, wow, what a dream. And uh, and Seth said, Daddy, you need to put this on Facebook. So I said, well, draw, draw, draw the picture, and I'll do that. So he drew this little picture that you see here. Seth's dream, there's Jesus sitting on the throne and the bright rays of light coming out of him. And I took a picture of that on my cell phone and I put it up on my Facebook page and got a lot of responses, quite a few responses. And after, as he and I were discussing this, I I just thought to myself, my mind went to a verse in the book of Acts. And I opened my Bible and I turned to the book of Acts chapter 2 and I opened opened it up and I showed Seth this verse where it says in verse 17 and 18 that in the last days, 
God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And then it says somewhere in here that, that people will dream dreams when the Holy Spirit is poured out. And he was sitting next to me and he looked at that Bible verse and when he saw last days in Acts 2.17 and dreaming, then he, he, he put his little hand on his heart and he just went, oh. he said, Daddy, these are the last days. These are the last days. And he could just, he could feel it in his soul that we were in the final days. The verse resonated with his heart. And I can't help but think, you know, what's it going to be like when we get up there and we see Jesus sitting on his throne? And he is going to be so bright. Wow. Revelation 18, verse 1 tells us, as we already read, that before Jesus comes, God's brightness is going to burst all around the world. Revelation 18.1 says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. Did you see that? Now, I don't believe that this means that the, that the dirt is going to start glowing. This is not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is that in the final days, right before Jesus comes, there is going to be an angelic manifestation or a Holy Spirit manifestation of tremendous light and power that's going to belt the world. And that light is going to shine into people's minds and into their hearts. It's basically God saying that this is my last call. Last call before the door closes, the door of the ark. Last call before probation comes to an end. It's Jesus sending his light and saying, this is it. This is it. Come to me, Jesus is going to be saying, and make the right choice. And I've been, I have pondered this verse for many years, and I've thought about it, and I've prayed about it, and my earnest desire is to be a part of that light when it comes down and shines. How about you? It's going to be a wonderful thing. Now, as I have studied this verse and realized what the whole chapter is talking about and compared it with other verses in the book of Revelation, I have come to the conclusion that the angel that comes down from Revela- in Revelation 18.1 and lightens the earth with his glory, that in the heart of that glory, in the heart of that light and that brightness is a very powerful message about Jesus Christ himself. That he is at the heart of God's message. And doesn't that make sense? That Jesus would be at the heart of God's message. And I'm also going to show you as we go on that the heart of that message has to do with a distinct message of Jesus Christ as our righteousness. And that's what I will be unpacking for you as we move along. If you have studied your Bible carefully and studied prophecy, studied revelation, and studied uh, the spirit of prophecy, and put the pieces together, you have discovered that the angel that comes down in Revelation 18.1, which we often refer to as the fourth angel, that what he does really is he comes down and he combines his power with the messages of the three angels in Revelation 14 during the final crisis especially with the third angel's message, 
the fourth angel comes down and gives special power to the third angel's message during the final crisis. These are, these are facts. And when you study this carefully, it's definitely there. Uh, Revelation 18 talks about the fall of Babylon, which is mentioned in the second angel. And what is the final message to the world? It's the third angel. So go back to Revelation 14. And the three angels' messages are found in verses 6 and 7 is message 1. Verse 8 is message 2. And then verse 9 says that the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice. So the third is the last. It's the last of the three who gives the final message. And when you read the context of Revelation 14, when you get to toward the end of the chapter, after the three angels' messages, in verse 14, we have a picture of the coming of Christ on a white cloud. 14.14 says, Behold, I, I saw a white cloud, and on the cloud was the Son of Man. So when you look at the order in Revelation 14, we have the three angels' messages, the third angel being the last message, and then we have a description of the return of Jesus Christ. So God has a last message to give to the world. Last call. Three angels' messages. Now, notice verse 12. Verse 12 is the conclusion of the last message that God gives to the world, that the fourth angel comes down and gives special power to. And there's the verse on the screen. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that do what? Right, that keep the commandments of God, and it says they have the faith of Jesus. Now, I'm going to show you as we go along, we're going to have a real Bible study in just a little while. It's going to be very powerful from the book of Romans. I'm going to show you how the message of the righteousness of Christ is at the heart of this message. I'm going to show you that. I'm going to make it very, very plain. This verse is talking about a group of people called saints. Saints who are ready for the second coming. And it says that they do these two things. They keep the commandments of God. That's really the first part of the conclusion of the message. And I'm going to show you that the only way that anyone can keep the commandments of God is through Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I'm going to prove that to you from the Bible in just a little bit. And then it says, and the faith, they also have the faith of Jesus. Now, I've noticed something about this verse. You see that period right there? That period is the last period at the end of the last message for the last time. Revelation 14, 12. And what is the, the word or the name before the period? What's the last word? the last name before the last period at the end of the last message before Jesus returns. It's the name Jesus. Right. And that has impressed me. It has. The first angel has the everlasting gospel which is centered in Jesus Christ. The third angel speaks of the lamb in verse 10. And then at the end of the message we have the name Jesus being lifted up. Jesus is at the foundation of the message. He's at the heart of the message. He's the conclusion of the message. 
And one of these days when God's people, his saints, get to heaven, the center stage of the whole universe is going to be Jesus Christ sitting on his throne, and he's going to be so bright, so bright. And we are going to kneel gladly, gladly, and and bow down and worship the one who made it possible for us to be there. Wow, Jesus Christ. He's at the center, the center of everything. Now, I want to show you a quotation that has burned into my soul. It's a quotation from a book that many of you, maybe not all of you, are familiar with, but it's one of the volumes of the testimonies that the Lord has given to our church. And this is volume 6, page 19. Now, look at this quote, and I'm going to unpack this as we go along. It says that the Lord God of heaven will not send upon the world his judgments for disobedience and transgression until he has sent his watchmen to give the warning. And that makes sense, doesn't it? He didn't send the flood until first he raised up Noah. Noah gave a message, and then he sent the flood. God wants to warn the world first before something big happens. And so God wants his watchmen to give, give the warning. He will not close up the period of probation until the message shall be more distinctly proclaimed. Now, that has impressed me, that God has a message that must be very distinctly and clearly proclaimed to the whole world before God is going to wrap things up. That's what that's saying. And then it says, now look at this. This is basically an illumination of the verse that we read in verse 12, Revelation 14, 12. It says that the law of God, the law of God is to be what? Magnified. It's to be lifted up higher and higher and higher. And I just, you know, it gives me shivers when I'm walking around an airport with this orange shirt that has 10 commandments on it. And on the back, 10 commandments from God. And I'm walking around and I feel like, my Lord, this is a sacred thing that I'm doing. I'm walking around representing the Ten Commandments. I've had some people, we have these uh, decals that we put on the back of cars that have that website. And I've had some people say, "I I don't want one of those. Because then I have to be a good driver. And then I tell that person, you need one of those bumper stickers, those rear decals on the back of your car, to motivate you to rise up to a higher standard and to be a good driver. The law of God is to be magnified. Its claims, now look at this, its claims must be presented in their true sacred character that the people may be brought to decide for or against the truth. That has really impressed me, that God's law is to be lifted up in such a way that people will be just brought to make a choice. We have to make a choice. Whose side are we on? We can't just be neutral. Uh, I used to teach Bible classes at Weimar Academy. I was a Bible teacher for high school kids, and we were once talking about uh, riding the fence, how a lot of people try to ride the fence, you know, one foot in the world, one foot with the Lord, And one of my students, an 18-year-old boy, looked and he said, he said, Steve, you can't ride the fence. And then he said, the devil owns the fence. And I've never forgotten that. That was over 20 years he told me that. Never forgotten that. 
You can't ride the fence. We're either on one side or the other. And when the Ten Commandments get lifted up the way they're supposed to be at the end of time, which is really the, the last part of the third angel's message, or that first part that says, here are they that keep the commandments of God. The commandments of God according to the Bible. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. Revelation 14, 12, right here in my Bible. God's law is to be lifted up higher and higher and higher, magnified, so people will be brought to make a choice one way or the other. And then, now notice what it says here. Yet, the work will be cut short in righteousness. We often think about, you know, are are we going to finish the work now? There's 7 billion people on this planet. How in the world are we going to finish the work? You ever get discouraged about that? But then I thought the Bible says in Romans chapter 9 that he will finish the work. He will do it. And it says he will cut it short in righteousness. God's going to finish his work. And eventually it's going to be ready or not. Here he comes. And he's going to do it through a people that are willing to be used. He will cut short. The work will be cut short in righteousness, is what the Bible says. Quoting Romans 9. Or Chen, I'm not exactly sure which verse it is. And then notice this. It says, the message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. Wow, does that impress you? That's why I wrote my book, God's Last Message, Christ Our Righteousness. This statement says that when the final moments of time come right before the close of probation, just like Noah's ark, the door closed, that the message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God that closes the work of the third angel. Isn't that powerful? I tell you, I can feel the Holy Spirit here right at this moment. God is talking to us. And he's going to continue to talk to us as we go on. This is a very, very powerful message. And that's why I've studied this. And that's why we're going to study this today. How's that sound? Sound good? This is a real Bible study. All right. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans. And let's go to Romans chapter 3. And I want to clarify something. I've still got that quote on the screen. I believe in the spirit of prophecy. I do. Dr. Saman has been talking about that, and I'm a believer as well. But I also want to clarify something, and that is that when the message of Christ's righteousness sounds from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord all over the planet, that that message is going to be preached primarily from the Bible, primarily from God's book, from the Bible. And that's the way it's supposed to be. The message has to be here. In the book, so people can see it clearly. Isn't that right? And so let's uh, turn to Romans chapter 3, and let's have a Bible study. And let me, before we get to chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, just a quick summary. Romans chapter 1, among other things, talks about the fact that the Gentile world is lost in sin. That's what Romans 1, especially the latter part, is all about. Romans chapter 2, Paul zeroes in on the Jewish world. 
God's professed people. And he basically says that the Jewish world is equally lost in sin. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul summarizes and says, What then? Are we any better than they? In no wise, for we have before proved that both Jews and Gentiles, that alike they are all under sin, putting us all together. And then verse 10, he makes his point. As it is written, quoting the Old Testament, there are a few righteous in every church, just a few. Did I quote that right? Are you, are you following your Facebook page or are you listening? Good. Paul doesn't say there's a few. Does he say at least there's, there's at least one in every church that's righteous? At least one. No. Paul said, and there's the verse, there is none righteous. And to make sure that we don't miss it, he says, no, not one. He really wants to drive his point home. Have you ever heard the expression, uh, what part of the word no don't you understand? (laughs) You ever heard that? Paul is very clear that there is not one single human being that is totally uh, righteous from birth to grave, at least among normal humanity. Now, what does the word righteous mean in the Bible? Keep your finger here and turn to Romans 8, verse 4. And Dr. Saman, this is a seminary education we're getting here. And I'm sure you know what that's like. This is real... This is not uh, elementary, what we're studying here. This is, this is a college course in the message of Christ's righteousness. In verse chapter 8, verse 4, and I sh- I'm sure I just appreciated your sermon last night, Dr. Simon, that we need to stick with the Bible. You know, people can have all kinds of degrees, and of course we're not against getting a degree. But there's a danger that people can become wise above what is written. And we need to follow the scriptures. And let the Bible interpret the Bible. And chapter 8, verse 4 talks about the righteousness of the what? Of the law. God has a law, which is a righteous law. Righteousness is rooted in the word righteous. And the word righteous is rooted in the word right. What's right and what's wrong. And this verse speaks of the righteousness of the law. God's law is a righteous law. Because it tells us what's right and what's wrong. Go to chapter 9. Romans 9, and look at verse 31. Romans 9, 31 says, But Israel, which followed after the law of what? Righteousness. So let's let Paul define his terms. Righteous, there's none righteous, no, not one, The law of righteousness, here again he refers to the law of righteousness. Israel tried to get the law of righteousness, but they have not attained to the law of righteousness. And the reason is, he says in the next verse, because they didn't seek it by faith, but by works, and they missed it entirely. So Paul is clear in these verses, and there's other verses And the little lady, Ellen White, affirms the same thing, that righteousness is defined by God's law, 
by the Ten Commandments. And I, if I had my Ten Commandments shirt on, you know, this would be a great time just to hold up my hands and have you look at the Big Ten. God has a law, and here it is on the screen. Well, at least here's a finger pointing to the law. What, what makes the Ten Commandments different from any other law that's ever been written in the history of the world? Why is it different than a, than a speeding law or a law against using drugs? Okay, it's a law of love. That's, that's a, lot of, a lot of it. But that law was written. God's law was written. The Ten Commandments were written in a totally unique, different way from any other body of laws that's ever been written. Even in the Bible. Even ceremonial laws, sacrificial laws, civil laws, judicial laws. There's something about the Big Ten that make the Big Ten different from all the laws. That's right. And you can see the picture there on the screen. The Ten Commandments were written not with uh, a pencil, not with a pen, not with uh, a computer mouse. Uh, It wasn't voice recognition. The Ten Commandments were written, the Bible says, in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. The Bible tells us that the Ten Commandments were written with the finger of God himself. That's what it says. God took his own finger and wrote that law. Now, um, we don't have time right now, but I encourage you to do this. And if you get my book, Christ and His Righteousness, you will find a very detailed study from Exodus chapter 20, of the first commandment, of the second commandment, of the third commandment, going right down through every single one of those commandments, very, very carefully. Go back to Romans 3. Romans 3.19. Romans 3.19. Paul, Paul wrote this. And this is New Testament, Paul. Now we know that whatsoever things the law says, it says to to them that are under the law. And the Greek word and the meaning for being under the law has to do with being under its authority, under the authority of, of the law of God. Now, how many people are under the authority of the law of God? He says, the law speaks to those who are under the law that every Jewish mouth may be stopped. Is that what it says? Now, some people, and they tell me this, the law, the Ten Commandments were just for the Jews. But Paul does not teach that. The word Jew isn't in the Ten Commandments. The word Israel isn't in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were written with the finger of God. There, It's above all the other laws, and it's an eternal law. When something is written on stone, it can't be changed. Have you ever heard the expression, we can change this or that because it's not written in stone? Do you know where that statement comes from? It comes from the Big Ten. That's right. God's law is written in stone with his own finger on a rock, which means it can never be changed. It can never be changed. And Paul says that every mouth, not every Jewish mouth, but every mouth, may be stopped. And all the world, notice, all the world may become guilty before God. See that? 
Very, very powerful verse. Now, I'm just going to briefly walk you through the Big Ten. When you open your Bibles, which we don't have time to go into a careful study of each commandment right now, but I encourage you to do that. It's in Exodus chapter 20. When we read carefully Exodus chapter 20, the first commandment says that you shall have no other gods before me. God basically says, I'm to be first in your life. Somebody, was, uh, maybe it was Scott or Dr. Um, Saman, I don't remember which one was talking. I think it was you, Dr. Saman, last night talking about the pilot and the co-pilot. And I thought, there's a phrase that I've, I've uh, heard that says, if, if God is your co-pilot in your life, change seats. Because <laughs> God does not want to just be your co-pilot. When he says, you shall have no other gods before me, he doesn't mean that you just, you know, vaguely say, oh yeah, I put the Lord first in my life. It really means that God really is to be first in your life, that, that you are not first in your life, that the Lord is first in your life. He's number one, and we're here to do his will, not just our wills. And the amazing thing is, is that we, when we put God first and not ourselves, the result is, amazingly, we find tremendous happiness from doing that. We, uh, we're, we're blessed. We start enjoying life. We're centered. We've, we've got it straight that God is to be number one. And that is the first commandment which he wrote with his own finger on solid stone. The second commandment is, has to do with idols. No idols. And idols can be all kinds of things. It can be things. It can be TV. It can be... Um, cars, it can be houses, land, opinions, self, food, all kinds of things can become idols. And the Lord says, I'm first, no idols ahead of me. Number three is that we're not supposed to take God's name in vain. We're supposed to reverence him and respect him when we speak his name. Number four is to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Number four, from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday night, this is God's holy day according to what he wrote with his own finger on stone. Number five is to honor your father and your mother, to honor and respect your parents, which is the right thing to do. Number six is not to murder. And Jesus says that if we hate, it's, it's considered murder. Um, we can murder ourselves by working too hard, in temperance, in labor, we can, hurt, we can murder ourselves by unhealthful habits, things that we do, the way that we live. Uh, we, can, we can murder in lots of different ways. Number seven is don't commit adultery. Do not commit adultery, which has to do with the whole area of sexuality. And it's not just referring to husbands and wives, but people that are not married need to be pure until they get married. I've been deeply convicted about that. Do not commit adultery. God is calling us to uh, moral purity. Husbands are to be faithful to their wives. Wives are to be faithful to their husbands. So children can, can grow up in homes where there is faithfulness. Uh, I was talking to Abby, my little five-year-old, the other day. We were reading the Ten Commandments, and I read the one that says, do not commit adultery. And I said to my little five-year-old, Abby, what does it mean, don't commit adultery? I, I had no idea what kind of answer I was going to get. And she thought about it. And she said, does it mean don't share your toys? <laughs> and I thought about that, and I said, yeah, it does in a way. 
that's what it means. Don't share your toys. And then I said, Abby, let me explain. I said, uh, uh, Daddy is married to Mommy. And what this means is that Daddy's not to go out and be with another Mommy, only with Mommy. And Mommy's not to go out and be with another Daddy, but only with this Daddy. And, and that's what it means. That's my way of teaching my, my child God's law. God is calling us to purity in the area of sexuality. Purity in marriage, and if we're not married, we need to wait until we get married, and that's the law of God. That's the law of God. That's what's right. How do we know what's right in this world in an age of total moral chaos and confusion? How do we know what's right anymore? I'll tell you, we know what's right by looking at the Ten Commandments. It is wrong to commit adultery. It is wrong to, uh, to murder. Number eight says, do not steal. Number nine says, don't lie. Number 10 says, don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor, which basically means be content with what you have. And Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments, quoting the Old Testament, by saying, you shall, you shall love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is the summary of the first table. And then the second table is summarized in loving your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor applies to anybody. Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, President Obama, people that are involved in witchcraft, people that are um, atheists. God wants us to learn to love our neighbor as ourselves. So that's the Ten Commandments, summarized in the Big Two. There's the Big Ten summarized by the Big Two. Now, here's my point, that when you really take a close, objective look at the Ten Commandments, honestly, and let the Holy Spirit just speak to your heart, then you realize the truth. And the truth is that in the light of the holy law of God, there is none righteous, no, not one. Isn't that right? And our mouths are stopped. God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. He wants us to stop talking. And this verse says that every mouth is stopped and the whole world becomes guilty before God. We need to realize Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, we all need to realize that in the light of the Ten Commandments, there's not a one of us, not a one of us, who has kept that law perfectly all of our lives. Not one. And that we are, uh, as Paul says, guilty before God. Now, guilty before God has to do with our accountability to him. We are responsible to God for our moral lives. Paul's very clear on this. The whole world is in this condition. Now, look at verse 20. Therefore, therefore, in the light of the law of God and our guilt before him, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And we're talking about his sight. What is going on in the sight of God? And Paul is basically saying that once we're guilty before God... No amount of deeds, even of trying to keep the law, can get us right before him. That's what he's saying. To be justified means to be no longer guilty before God. Verse 19, people are guilty before God. Verse 20, he talks about being justified before God. And these are two opposite states. We're either guilty before God or we're just before God, one or the other. And Paul is describing our condition. 
Uh, I heard an illustration once about, about this. Let's imagine a man who committed a crime, and he, he shot someone and killed him, and he was arrested, thrown in jail. Six months later, he's brought before the judge for a trial. And he stands before the judge, and the judge says, uh, looks at him and says, did you do it on that dark night of whatever night it was? Did you pull the trigger and kill that man? And the, uh, the man says, Your Honor, I did it. I did. I admit it. But, he said, but. And that's the difference between the sheep and the goats. The goats say, but. You know what goats do? They but. And so the man says, I did it, Your Honor, but. He said, but, Your Honor, I've been sitting in my cell for the last six months, and I've been very, very good. I have swept my cell. I have helped out in the cafeteria on a volunteer basis. They've let me do it. I have cleaned my cell. He said, Your Honor, I, have not, I, I haven't killed anybody in six months. I have been keeping the law for six months. Won't you let me off the hook? What's a good, just judge going to say? No, the gavel's going to come down because he's guilty. And the point is, here's the point. Once you've broken any one of these Ten Commandments, any one of them, and you're guilty before God, then no amount of obedience or works or effort or anything that you can do is going to lift that guilt off of your conscience. When you're guilty, you're guilty. And there you have no way out, at least as far as yourselves go. People try to get rid of guilt in many ways. Guilt is very powerful. It can be very destructive if it's not dealt with. People try to solve their guilt by entertainment, some by therapy, some by drugs, some by alcohol, some by sex. Try to get rid of their guilt. And there are others that try to get rid of their guilt by being good. If I can just obey enough, I can get rid of my guilt. But Paul says that none of these things work. None of them work. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of what? By the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, some people who don't really study the Bible carefully enough, they say, well, Steve, since we're not justified by the law, we're not saved by the law, therefore, we don't need the law. Let's just get rid of the law. Is that what Paul's saying? No. What is Paul saying? What do we, we're not, the, the law can't save us but the law can certainly do something for us, something big, something very important. The law can show us something. And what does it show us? It shows us our sin. Paul says in Romans 3:20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. It gives us a knowledge of our condition in the sight of a moral, holy, just good, unselfish, righteous God. Are you with me? And these are facts. And that's what the law is really good at, showing us our sins. Now, I want to tell you something very important. Don't miss this. That the only way that anyone can really appreciate the good news is by first understanding the bad news. You cannot appreciate grace until you understand law and guilt. Grace is meaningless without law. Grace is meaningless without law. 
And there's extremes on all sides. Some people preach law, but there's no grace. Some people preach grace, grace, but there's no law. And the beauty of Romans and the beauty of the third angel's message, which I will apply before we're done to the final crisis at the end of time, the beauty of the third angel's message is that law and grace come together in a very, very powerful way. We've got to know the bad news before we can appreciate the good news. Do you realize our condition in the sight of God? Do you realize that we're going to stand before God, before the Ten Commandments, before a holy law that's going to look at you and look at me and is going to say God is to be number one, no idols, don't take his name in vain, keep the Sabbath, honor your parents, no murder, no hate, no adultery, none, no stealing, no lying, no coveting? Do you realize the reality of the Ten Commandments? I do. I've been deeply moved by this. I don't want to play any games with my soul. I want to know what's right. Now, that's the, that's the context of the next verse. And let me ask you, are you, do you feel your need this morning, or now it's afternoon? Do you feel your need? I hope so. Are you ready for good news? Are you ready for good news? There is good news. God never gives us bad news without giving us good news right next to it. He puts them right together. And let's go into the good news. Verse 21 says, but now, it's now again, just like verse 19 says now. So verse 20 says now. The nows go together. But now, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of who? God. Okay, I'm going to push my, uh, my button here. And I'm going to talk about another righteousness. Hallelujah. I love this. But now, the righteousness of who? God. Whose righteousness do we need? God's righteousness. Is your righteousness enough? No, because if there's none righteous, no, not one, then it's obvious that our righteousness is not enough because we don't have any righteousness. We need another righteousness that comes from somewhere else. The righteousness of God, Paul says, without the law, which means apart from the law, separate from the law, is being manifested. It's going to be revealed. It says, and it's witnessed by the law and the prophets, which means that there is another righteousness from God somewhere else, separate from the law, and that righteousness and the law witnesses to it and says, that's it. That's the perfect righteousness that I'm looking for. It is witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even verse 22 says the righteousness of God. There it is again. Which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified. And justified means we're set right with God and our guilt is gone. Being justified freely. By his grace, hallelujah, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus is then lifted up. What Paul is doing is he's, he's, he's showing the whole world that we're all in a condition of guilt and moral responsibility before God, and we are sinners. To be a sinner means to be a breaker of the law. That's really what a sinner is. A sinner is someone who has broken the law. Anybody broken the law here in your life? Yes, that means we're all sinners. It may not be flattering to pride, but it's true. And once you realize you're a sinner, then you have only one, one hope. And it's a glorious hope. And the hope is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. And it is his righteousness. Now keep reading. Keep reading. Verse 25 says, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, or the mercy seat. That's what propitiation means. The mercy seat on top of the, the, of the ark, underneath which was the Ten Commandments. There's a mercy seat on top, of, on top of the ark, underneath which is the law of God in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Isn't that good? God has set him forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare, and what does Paul say to declare? His righteousness. Say that with me. To declare his righteousness. Yes. For the remission or the forgiveness of sins that are passed through the forbearance or mercy of God. Notice verse 26. To declare, I say, at this time, his what? His righteousness that he might be just, which means he upholds the justice of his law and his character, and he is the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, I know you can't see this because you don't have super-duper, super-duper vision, but I'm going to show you. I like to mark my Bible, and I have, here I've got Romans 3, 19, talks about our mouths are stopped Verse 20 says that we can't be justified by even trying to keep the law. It's impossible. And then verse 21 mentions the righteousness of God. Verse 22, the righteousness of God. Verse 25, his righteousness. Verse 26, his righteousness. I've underlined and put little circles next to righteousness of God, righteousness of God, his righteousness, his righteousness. So here is four times in the book of Romans... Verses 21 to 26, the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lifts up Jesus Christ and his righteousness as the only hope of humanity in the light of the fact that we've broken the Ten Commandments. Is this biblical? Is what I'm sharing with you from the Bible? It's as biblical as biblical can be. Paul points to Jesus and his righteousness as humanity's only hope. And in verse 26, he says that he can still be just, he can still uphold his law. God doesn't change his law. He doesn't overlook his law. And he doesn't overlook sin. But he's, he's dealt with it. He's solved the sin problem in a person. And the person is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. Now, let me uh, explain something to you. And this is the most exciting part of this whole talk. This is so exciting. The Bible says that this is his name that he will be called. Simone read that for the scripture reading. Jeremiah 23, verse 6 says, This is his special name that he'll be called, and that is the Lord 
our righteousness. That's what the Bible says. What does it mean that Christ is our righteousness? I'll explain it to you. If righteousness is keeping the law, this is a righteous law, the Ten Commandments, what does it mean that Christ is our righteousness? What it means is that Jesus came down from heaven 2,000 years ago. He looked at our condition, our lost condition, and he loved us still. Somebody once said, Jesus did not want to stay in heaven. He had no desire to stay in heaven while we were lost. So he came down here and he was born. He entered a, a mother's body and was born as a little tiny baby in Bethlehem. Little baby with little hands, little eyes, a little mouth. And he, he grew up. Satan tried to kill him in Bethlehem, but he missed him. God sent him to Egypt and then got him out before Herod's soldiers wiped out all the children under two years, eight, two years of old. Satan knew this child is the one. He's the threat to his kingdom. And he tried to destroy him, but he couldn't. He couldn't. God was watching over his son. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. 30 years working for uh, his earthly father, Joseph, in the carpenter shop. When the Bible says in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus submitted to, his, to Joseph and Mary, which commandment was he keeping? Number five. Good. Very good. We should know the ten from top to bottom. We should know them frontwards, backwards. We should know the law of God. We should teach it to our children. And when Jesus honored Joseph and Mary, he kept the fifth commandment perfectly. For who? For you and for me. When we haven't honored our fathers and mothers, Jesus did it perfectly for us. Luke 4 says that Jesus, when he grew up, after his baptism, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. This was his regular custom. Jesus Christ kept the Sabbath. He did it for 33 years. And who did he do that for? For you and for me. When Jesus said to the devil in the wilderness, when Satan said, if you, he said, look at all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you everything. If you just bow down and worship me, I'll give it all to you. What did Jesus say? He said to that devil, he said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Get behind me, Satan. Get out of here. And Jesus kept the first commandment. Number one, he put his father first, no idols. There's a man named A.T. Jones. He's dead now. You can read about this in my book on the righteousness of Christ. He preached uh, along with another friend of his named Ellet J. Wagner, in Adventist history over a hundred years ago at a big general conference session in a town called, it was in a Minneapolis, Minnesota. And Jones said, this I love this, he said every time Jesus resisted temptation and obeyed the Ten Commandments, he wove another stitch in a robe of righteousness for you and for me. When Jesus honored his parents, he, robe a, he wove a stitch of obedience to the fifth commandment for you and for me. When he kept the Sabbath, he wove another stitch 
in a robe of righteousness for you and me. When he resisted the devil in the wilderness, he wove another stitch. Every time Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth, he kept the ninth commandment and he wove another stitch in a robe of righteousness for you. Commandment by commandment, day by day, temptation by temptation, struggle by struggle, Jesus Christ, my hero, and should be your hero, resisted the devil for you and for me. There's a song that I, I like, and I don't remember all the words, but the, the lady who sings the song says, says uh, as I watched him struggle up that hill, without a thought of turning back, without a thought of turning back, he went all the way to the cross. And it says, why did he die? Why did he go through this? And then the answer in the song is, he, he died for freedom. He died for love. He died for you. And he died for me. Jesus Christ obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly throughout his entire life for you and for me, so that he could earn the royal right to the name, the Lord, our righteousness. And not only that, but if you look carefully at this picture, what do you see in the middle of that law? You see a cross. At the end of Jesus' life, he picked up all the other gods, the idols, the taking God's name in vain, the Sabbath breaking, the adultery, the dishonoring of parents, the murders, the lies, the hatred, the hostility, the worldliness, the pride, the terrorism, the pornography, the occultism, all the darkness that's in this whole world in these last days and throughout history. Seven billion people. Jesus took all of it into his mind and into his heart. He said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But then he thought about you and me. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go all the way. I'm not going to fail. I will not fail. And the whole universe was, was centered in those final scenes, every angel, every demon, the whole universe, they were all watching breathlessly to see what would Jesus do. And when he finally said, it is finished, it's done, and he bowed his head and he died, the whole universe just, they were, they were breathless, breathless. And then there was a shout up there, hallelujah, Hallelujah, he did it. It's done. Jesus developed a perfect robe of righteousness for you to cover your life, and then he died on the cross for all your sins. He's got, he's got it all. He's, he's what you need. <laughs> he's what I need. I need him. I need his covering and his righteousness. Got a little bit more to do here before I wind this up. It's so powerful. Go back to Romans. God can still be just. He can still uphold that law. It's still right there without compromise, but he can put the robe of Jesus Christ's righteousness right over you. 
and cover all your sins as a free gift from God. Wow. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, and we must make a choice, we have to choose to give up sin. This is no cheap gospel. Once you really understand the law and the cross together, once you understand Mount Sinai and Mount Calvary, once you understand that the finger that wrote the law with its own finger on stone was on a hand that was nailed to a cross, once you see the, the it's like a battery, you know, when you have a battery, there's a positive and a negative, right? That's what makes the battery work. And when you see the law showing you your sins, and then Jesus Christ as your righteousness paying the price, when you see both of them together, then you know you have to choose. You're brought face to face with a choice. And the choice is, are you going to give up your sins and have faith in Jesus as your total and only Savior? Or are you going to stay in your sins and end up guilty before God and stand before him on the judgment day and be lost? It's one or the other. There's no middle ground. God's law requires us to put him first. If we're not willing to put him first, we're going to be lost. That's the way it is. There's no way around it. But God has made a provision to save us and for us to be forgiven. And it's through Jesus, but we have to make a choice. And when we choose Jesus and we we choose to give up our sins and to trust him that he's it, he's our righteousness, he's it. I trust him, not me. I heard about a, a, a wall plaque that said, somebody said, Lord, I found the problem. Those are the words on the wall, on the plaque. Lord, I found the problem. It's me. And then the rest of it says, my child, I have the answer. It's me. Jesus is the answer. And when we're justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. We don't have to go to bed at night feeling guilty. Jesus will lift up the guilt. And he'll take 33 years of righteous living and he'll apply it to you as a free gift. How would you like to leave this camp meeting, go home and find out that somebody made a deposit in your bank of $100 million, tax-free, no strings attached? Would you have a good day if you found that out? Yeah, I could see him going, yeah, I would. <laughs> I'd have a good day too. And what, what happens when you find out that that your record in heaven, your guilty, sinful, dark, stained record, that Jesus can put his own righteousness on top of it so that when God looks at your record, your record, he doesn't see all your sins of breaking the Ten Commandments. He sees 33 years of the righteousness of his son as a free gift to you. Wow. Would that uh, help you to have a good day? Now look at verse 5. Paul says... Hope does not make us ashamed because the love of God has been shed abroad or poured out. Are we waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Do we long for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? The the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given to us. The Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now here's here's a deep seminary lesson in a simple way. 
that the Holy Spirit being poured out and the love entering your heart comes through the channel of, of the righteousness of Christ. You see the law. You see your Savior. You trust your Savior. You receive his righteousness and his forgiveness as a gift. And then the power comes. Then the power comes. Got it? That's the order that's in the Bible. Romans 5.5 follows Romans 5.1. The Holy Spirit comes after and through the channel of justification by faith. If you try to get right with God on your own without Christ, you're like a hamster going around and around and around in a cage and getting nowhere. You get nowhere. But when you trust in Jesus and his righteousness, then something happens. Paul says the power of the Holy Spirit can come into your heart. Now, what happens when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart? Then what? Look at Romans 8, verse 4. Romans 8, verse 4. And all this is in my book, God's Last Message, Christ Our Righteousness. It's all in there. The Lord has taught me this message. He has taught me this truth. Romans 8, 4 says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled. Fulfilled where? Was it fulfilled in Jesus? Did Jesus fulfill and keep and obey the law? He did. And that's the foundation. The foundation is what Jesus already did for you. If you're going to build a house, first you've got to lay a foundation. If you don't lay the foundation right, the whole house is going to be messed up. So you lay the foundation first. And the foundation is what Jesus Christ did for you a long time ago outside of you. It's not in you, it's outside of you. He did it. He lived that life. He died that death. He rose from the dead. He's your Savior. And then once you see that and believe in him and receive his forgiveness, his gift, your guilt is gone, then you can be lifted up. And then you can make real progress in your Christian life. And Paul says, then the righteousness of the law will be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And in other words, receiving Christ in his righteousness and the Holy Spirit results in a life of obedience to the Ten Commandments. You see that? That's right there in Romans 8, verse 4. Now, let me go back to the verse in Revelation 14, 12. And I'm going to tell you a lot in the next five minutes. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. How is this possible? How can sinners become saints? How can lawbreakers become law keepers? There's only one way. Before you become a keeper of the commandments of God, see the word keep? You can't keep until you know that you have not kept. You can't keep until you know that you've broken. And then your mouth is stopped. Your mouth is stopped. No excuses. No rationalizations. Nothing. Silence. And when you do speak, you have one plea. And your plea is, Father, I'm a sinner. I repent of my sins and I trust in Jesus Christ and his righteousness and what he did on the cross for me. 
And when you do that, all heaven rejoices. Your angel sings. Jesus said, the angels, there's joy over one sinner who repents. And you trust in Jesus as your Savior. He covers your past. He covers your sins. He covers your life. And he comes into your heart by the Holy Spirit, which brings love. As Paul said, love comes into your heart. And through that love, then and only then are you enabled to keep the commandments of God. That's how this verse is going to be fulfilled. This, this verse shows that commandment keepers will surface at the end of time. There will be commandment keepers at the end of time. And the only way that's going to happen is through Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Commandment keepers are born through the Holy Spirit, through the message of Jesus and his righteousness. All right, I'm going to try to, I'm going to take five more minutes. I got to do this. And I'm going to try to just quickly, just tell you very, very quickly, I have a whole talk on this, but I don't have time to give it to you. And I want to tie this into the last crisis, September 11. Who remembers what day September 11 came? Came on. Tuesday, that's right. Tuesday. And what happened on the Sunday following September 11? Some of you have been listening to my talks. The Sunday following 911, more people went to church that following Sunday that had hardly ever gone to church ever. And what happened was a crisis hit, and then people flocked to church on Sunday. We're heading for another crisis, aren't we? We're heading for a final crisis. We're heading for a time of trouble, much as, such as never was. We're heading for more disasters, more earthquakes, more tornadoes, more fires, more floods, more problems. And finally, at some point, and I'm not a prophet, I don't know exactly what the catalyst is going to be, but when the final crisis hits, Sunday, the people are going to go to church just like they did during the week of 911. Crisis will be followed by Sunday attendance. People will go to church like they've never gone to church before. And that will eventually result, if we don't get out of the crisis, which we did 11 years ago or 12 years ago, but when the final crisis hits, we won't get out of it. And Sunday attendance will eventually shift to Sunday legislation. And we're going to find ourselves in the midst, Seventh-day Adventists believe, and I believe, and it's very simple to see it, we're going to find ourselves in the midst of the final crisis at the end of the world called the Mark of the Beast. We're going to be right in the middle of it. Now, what's going to happen when the crisis hits and Sunday attendance shifts to Sunday legislation and people are trying to force us to go to church on the first day of the week? What then is going to happen at that time? Look at the screen. What's going to happen when that time comes? God's going to pour out his spirit upon his people. He's going to, and he's pouring his spirit on now to get us ready. And the Ten Commandments are going to be lifted up like they've never been lifted up before. The law of God is going to be magnified. And, and people are going to do what I just did with you around the world, on Fox News, on the radio, on television, with their neighbors, in front of their reporters, all around the world. People are going to be lifting up the Ten Commandments and showing people number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, number six, right down the line. And the Holy Spirit is going to convict people all over the planet that they have broken the Ten Commandments. They got the wrong day. Sunday should never be legislated. It's the wrong day, and it should never be done by force. The right day is the day that God specified with his own finger on stone. Remember the Sabbath day. And people are going to see the law lifted up during the final crisis, they're probably going to be wearing T-shirts in airports. And then what's going to happen? When people are convicted around the world that they've broken the Ten Commandments, 
then what's going to happen? Then what? When you, when, you know, is, it, is it enough to just tell people during the final crisis, just, just shift from Sunday to Saturday and you'll be fine? If you just start keeping the right day, everything will be fine. No, that's not a good answer. That's not a good answer. When the Ten Commandments are lifted up and people see that they've broken all the, all the Ten Commandments, then they need to get the message of Christ and his righteousness. Right? That's when the message of Christ's righteousness will sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. What we've just done will be duplicated all over the planet, all over the world, in Russia, in Australia, in Japan, in China, North America, Canada. The Ten Commandments will be lifted up high, and then Jesus will be lifted up higher and higher and higher, and the whole world will be brought to a final point of choice. They must make a choice. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? What are you going to do? I want to tell you something that I've also been deeply convicted with. When this time finally comes, and if we're going to be teaching the Ten Commandments, brothers and sisters, we cannot have any skeletons in our closets. You cannot tell your neighbors and your friends that they need to, be, that they need to look at the Ten Commandments during that final crisis if they know that you're breaking them. Right? We can't do that. Now is the time to get all the skeletons out of the closet. Now's the time to get right with God. Now's the time to put away all the sin and to line up with the law of God through Jesus Christ and his righteousness. So when the crisis comes and we're in the spotlight, we're in the limelight, the reporters are looking at you. White Horse Media, by the grace of God, we're going to be sending out press releases and I hope to get on Fox News with Bill O'Reilly and tell him what the no-spin zone is really all about and lift up the Ten Commandments and then lift up Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And we cannot do that in the final crisis if we are willingly breaking God's law. We can't do it. And I want to tell you that God is preparing a people right now to be ready to stand up during that crisis and to give the three angels' messages like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the plains of Babylon. The three men, the three angels, we will not bow down. And we will be lifting up Jesus and his righteousness all around the world. And then when everybody makes their final choice, the beast and the mark, or Jesus and obedience to his law, then the doors above will close. The plagues will fall all around the world. And at the end of those plagues, Jesus will appear in the clouds with power and great glory to come down from the sky and to send his angels to, to grab every single saint who loves Jesus and who takes a stand for keeping the Ten Commandments in a world that's full of sin. And every one of them will be picked up, one by one, picked up and taken up to glory. And we will then be up there and we will see when Jesus gets us up there, we'll see him sitting on his throne and he will be so bright, just like my son saw in that dream. Hallelujah. I'm going to close with a little story, and this is it. Uh, earlier this year, 
my family went to Spokane, Washington, about an hour from our house, where they have an annual, what they call a Bloomsday Run. Every year, when the snow is gone and the flowers are blooming, and it's a 7.5-mile run. And, uh, and here's, we were there. There's the date, May 5, 2013, just a couple months ago. Not even two months ago. And there's my wife, Kristen, and little Abby, and Seth. And we're at the beginning of the, of the race, and the time clicked over, and they sounded the buzzer, and over 50,000 people began to go. Some walked, some ran. And my wife and I had made a decision. Last year, Abby was in a stroller because it's a long way for a little four-year-old. But this year, we decided we're not going to put her in a stroller. We're going to trust that she can do it. And we're going to leave the stroller in the car. That was a big decision. Well, after uh, about a half a mile, Abby was so tired, she said, Daddy, I need to be on your shoulder. I can't make it. And Kristen and I, with sinking hearts, thought, uh-oh, we made a, long, a bad choice. We got seven more miles of this. <laughs> with a little girl who can't walk very well now, who's all tired out, and no stroller. Well, here's what happened. She complained for the first two and a half miles until we got to the 2.5-mile marker. And at 2.5-mile marker, there was a lot of water. There were tables of water in cups. And Abby got there, and she took the cups and she poured them on her head, and she drank cup after cup after cup. Here's a great testimony, Evelyn, about the power of drinking water. And she drank and drank like six cups. And I tell you, that little girl, she, she started running. She didn't need a stroller, and I didn't have to carry her, except for a little ways later on. But she walked and ran and walked and ran, and here you see Abby and Seth at the very end, at the seven-mile mark, there they are, and look at her, Seth's thumbs up, and Abby's going, yeah, I did it. And what was it that carried her through? It was the water, that's right. Now look at this verse. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-five says, as cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a faraway land. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? And I tell you, the good news is that Jesus Christ is our righteousness and he will give us the water of life. And through his water, the message and the experience of Christ our righteousness will empower us to endure to the end. That's what will move us to, to say to the world, you're not putting the mark of the beast in my forehead. I don't need to buy or sell. I don't care what happens. I don't care about what the devil and the pressure and what's going on. You can heat the fiery furnace up seven times, but I'm not going to bow down. And the reason is because I trust in Jesus and his righteousness, and he loves me. He gave it all for me, and I, he's in my mind, he's in my heart, and I'm going all the way with him. And with that water of life, God's going to give people power to make it all the way through to the end. To the end. Got it? I know I went a little bit over my time. What's more important than what we just did? I'm going to pray closing prayer, and when we pray that closing prayer, we need to make a decision to choose Jesus and his righteousness and to keep the Ten Commandments in a world that is falling apart because of sin.
the bright one who's sitting on his throne loves us all. And we have to make a choice. So as we bow our heads and pray, I'm going to pray a little prayer, and I, I invite you to, make, to pray the same thing that I'm praying and make the choice in your heart right now to be completely on Jesus' side. So let's bow our heads and pray. And you can repeat this in your own heart or whisper softly. Dear Jesus, please forgive me for all of my sins and put your robe of perfect white righteousness over my life and come into my heart and change me, change my heart and put your law in my heart and help me with your power to love you, to love you, Lord, and to keep the Ten Commandments in a world being destroyed by sin. Bless us all, Lord. Thank you so much. Come soon, Jesus, and take us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.